Good morning. My name is Emily DeLue, and I'm serving as executive director here at Newcom. This is the final sermon of 2020. The year that we thought would never end is ending, and we are in the final stretch. 2020 is kind of like a marathon, right? And that finish line is in view. I ran the Chicago Marathon about 10 years ago, and I had trained for that thing for months. I studied the course, and when I ran that race, it was hard, but I was ready for it. And when I was crossing that finish line, I had this sense of satisfaction and celebration. Now, we're crossing the finish line of 2020, but I'm not sure we're crossing it quite the same way my mid-20s pre-baby fit self was crossing that thing. We're more like that runner who is now barely walking, probably limping. There's, the sweat has now dried all over their face, so they're salty. Their body's partially in shock. They're crossing that finish line going, I don't know what happened, but whatever it is, it better not happen again. That's generally us right now. And yet, I believe that God has a word for us as we are getting ready to finish this crazy marathon we've been in and head into our next one. So we're going to hunker down in the Old Testament today. This year, I have been particularly drawn to stories in the Old Testament. Partially it's because Kid City, we've been going through some key stories in the Old Testament. Hey, Kid City, I see you. And I like to study the, the stories that I'm going to be teaching for Kid City. But also, I think the stories and the prophecies in the Old Testament give us a glimpse into the heart and character of God. God's heart of compassion and justice, slow to anger and abounding in love. But at the same time, the Old Testament is full of mystery and tension. I find myself thoroughly perplexed by how and when God chooses to act, and honestly, some of those things in the Old Testament just don't make a lot of sense to me. But I think you would agree with me. I mean, this year hasn't made sense to me. And so I really needed to see a God who is good and faithful in that mysterious space of uncertainty, disappointment, and tension. A God who is for his people, even when things don't make sense. A God who we can't figure out but we know is good. The particular story we're going to look at today is that of Hagar, a pregnant woman who against her will was thrown into uncertainty, disappointment, and tension. We'll look at how God met her and how she responded to God, and I believe God has something for us in this. I chose this passage because it speaks to a very tender part of my story. A little over five years ago, I was five months pregnant with my second son, or second child, Davey, and I got a phone call from my wonderfully healthy dad that telling me that he had just gotten a checkup uh, because he had some mild indigestion, and the doctor found a large tumor on his pancreas. Our world stopped as we tried to figure out what does this mean and treatment plans, and we tried to maintain hope. And, but 30 days later, I found myself at my dad's apartment in Oakland with my pregnant belly full of life and promise, and I was holding my dad's hand as he breathed his last. In those final months of pregnancy, I too was, against my will, thrown into uncertainty, disappointment, and tension, and those are understatements. 
I had specific ideas for how I wanted God to meet me, and it didn't quite pan out as I expected. So I invite you to enter into this story with me today as we explore the character and heart of a God who sees, a God who sees that compassion is for us and is with us in the midst of uncertainty, disappointment, and tension. So let's do a quick recap of where we are in the Bible. We're starting in Genesis. So uh, let's see. Adam, uh, God created the world. Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled. We've got Noah's Ark that already happened. Tower of Babel happened. And now we are in Genesis 12. So Genesis 12 is where God makes a promise to a man named Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram and his wife Sarah, who was later Sarai, who was later renamed Sarah, were in their 60s and 70s and they didn't have any children. God pointed out the land of Canaan uh, to be the place of promise for them and so they headed there only on the promise and call of God. This brings us to Genesis 15. And at this point, God comes to Abram again and says, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your reward is going to be great. But Abram pushes back because it's actually been several years since that initial promise in, the, in Genesis 12. And so they still don't have any kids. Abram says, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since, since I remain childless? You've given me no children. So at this point, God confirms that uh, he will give Abram a child, and he makes this wonderful promise, this unconditional uh, promise of faithfulness that he is going to give him the child and will bless the entire world. There's a lot of richness, richness to this passage, but we can't stay there because now we are at Genesis 16. So open your Bibles with me to Genesis 16. My dad was a pastor for 40 years, and every Sunday he would ask his congregation to stand as he read scripture. And so as a way of honoring his legacy today, I'd like to invite you to stand wherever you are, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy word. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took his Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When Hagar knew that she was pregnant, she began to mis despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant's in your hands, Abram says. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. 
You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there in between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, Abram, Sarah, and I'm probably going to call her Sarah because it's easier and she becomes that name anyway. Abram, Sarah, and Hagar are all experiencing very uncertain, disappointing, and tense times. And all three of them respond really differently. Abram responds to this situation with ambivalence and passivity. He completely relinquishes any responsibility for what happens to Hagar and leaves it up to Sarah. So I'm not really impressed with how Abram handles this situation, but he gets a lot of airtime in other sermons. You've probably heard lots of sermons about him, so we're going to move on. But key, key summary here, God is faithful to keep his promises despite unfaithfulness and failures from his people. That's that. Moving on to Sarah. Sarah is complex. Dr. Wilda Gaffney, a Hebrew scholar, describes her as straddling the peril privilege scale. In this time, women were considered to be property. So that alone means that Sarah experienced a good amount of peril. But as the wife of a wealthy man like Abram, she also had privilege. This in-between position that Sarah had really gave her an opportunity to potentially stand in solidarity with Hagar to form a sisterhood of, of sorts. But Sarah demonstrates what we know to be too true. Hurt people hurt people, right? Hurt people hurt people. Sarah was in the midst of experiencing 10 years of infertility after God had already promised her this son. But God's promise came to them when Sarah was 65 years old. So you can imagine she had had several decades prior of wanting to have a child and then that not happening. She had probably given up all hope for a child, but then God came and gave this promise. And yet there's still no child. That is month after month after month of disappointment. In those days, infertility was viewed as a punishment from God, and it was a cause for great shame in the community. So Sarah responded to this situation by attempting to control the situation. She says, the Lord kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Can't you hear the disillusionment in her words? Does any of that sound familiar? The Lord kept me from what? The Lord kept me from getting into grad school. The Lord kept me from having that fun personality that would make me more, more attractive to people. Perhaps God's holding out on me. God's punishing me for some mistake. That disappointment and uncertainty is palpable. So with my first child, I had a horribly long labor, 50 hours. It was awful. But that, pregnant, that labor ended in an emergency C-section. So when I, got, when I got pregnant with my second child, I decided I, I, didn't, I really just didn't want to have another C-section. C-sections are not, not that big of a deal. I just didn't want to have another one. But after my dad died, 
that desire for a particular type of birth, which was fine, became into a fearful obsession. Somehow along the way, I decided that there was only one way for God to meet me, and it was going to be in giving me the birth that I wanted. And I, but I'd comfort myself by saying, well, with all that I've gone through this the past couple of months, God, there's no way God would, would do this to me. There's no way God would be so harsh with me. But then, just a few weeks before the baby was born, the baby was breached. And typically, unless there's some sort of dramatic thing that happens, if you've got a breech baby, you're having a C-section. And I lost it. God was holding out on me. So I started making demands of God. God, if you're really for me, if you're actually good and not cruel, you'll solve this problem. I've been so faithful to you. Won't you give me this one thing? Don't you see that I'm barely hanging on? Do you even care? You know, one of the most insidious and destructive lies that we believe is that God is holding out on us and that God is not for us. We believe God's holding back from us and not for us. That lie distrusts the heart and intentions of God, and it leads us to fend for what's mine, to clench our fists and harden our hearts, and to do whatever we can to gain back control, and whether that means using people, using whatever means necessary. So Sarah, in her deep disappointment, her distress, came up with plan B, and Hagar was that plan B. Sarah chose to exercise her privilege and power in this situation to gain control. We're almost to Hagar, I promise, but I wanted to take a moment to give some attention to Abram and Sarah in their full humanity because I think we need to see ourselves in them. Often as Americans, we like to place ourselves as the protagonists and heroes of the story. We're always Moses, we're not Pharaoh. And I have to say especially my fellow white brothers and sisters, we do this a lot. We're always King David. We're not King Saul. Well, except for when King David sleeps with someone and then kills someone, then we're the prophet Nathan who confronts David, right? We're Israel. We're never Babylon. And in this story, we're Hagar. We're not Abram and Sarah. And, and I do, I resonate with Hagar in some really profound ways, but... Um, the reality is, as a white woman, I need to explore how often I've been like Sarah. In what ways do I choose to exercise my privilege? When I'm afraid and when I'm disappointed, I, when do I choose to exercise my privilege rather than stand in solidarity with my sisters? How do I treat people as a means to an end? These unflattering stories in scripture invite us in to ask hard questions, and I believe that God asks us to do that, to ask the hard questions and develop a habit of doing that. So now on to Hagar. Hagar was a slave from Egypt, and she had no power in this situation. It was, it was common cultural practice to offer a maidservant to a man to, to you know, firm up his family line, but that doesn't make this experience any less difficult for Hagar. I mean, she's carrying a child that is not going to be her own. And Sarah, blinded by tunnel vision for control, ends up viewing Hagar as a threat. 
Verse 6, then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So Hagar fled from Sarah. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Something I love about scripture is how much is packed in between sentences. Scholars say the place where God found Hagar was about 70 miles from Abram and Sarah. 70 miles while pregnant. Hagar is desperate. She is running away with no plans to go back and no real vision for where she's going. And that's where God meets her. Right there. First thing God does is bestow honor on Hagar when she has been dishonored. He says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? God does three things here. He calls Hagar by name. He speaks directly to her and he listens to her. Prior to this, her involvement in carrying this child was not her choice. She wasn't consulted, and it seems like no one was really that interested in her perspective on the matter. But with this simple question, God honors her agency and her voice. And then God proceeds to promise her a son named Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your misery, the angel says. Nowhere in this story does it say that Hagar cried out to God. Nonetheless, God hears her, God goes after her. He meets her in her uncertainty, disappointment, and tension. God actually breaks Genesis protocol by making this promise directly to her. Everywhere else in Genesis, the promise for a child is made to a man because, in, because you know, children go through the family line. The family line is going through the man. But at this point, God makes this promise to her. The family line will run through her. God gives her a promise of her own son who would become its own nation. This is not a plan B or a subsidiary of Abram's promise. This is her own promise for the future. When no one else acknowledged her agency and her voice, God spoke dignity and life over her. Dignity and life over her. The specifics of God's promise to Hagar don't totally make sense to me. But we have to look at how Hagar responds to God's words. Something about this encounter with God's presence and promise completely changed the, tra the trajectory of her life. She responds to God's commands with praise, obedience, and courage. Hagar declares, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees Scholars say that when she gives God this name, she's essentially identifying God's nature. So, what does this tell us about God's nature, about who God is? The nature of this God is the one who, finds the, who sees the lonely single mother. He's the one who spots Zacchaeus in that tree and goes after that lost sheep. This is a God who seeks out those who don't have it together, those who don't have an answer for where they're going, those who are deep in the circle of, of uncertainty, disappointment, and tension. And let's be honest, friends, we are living through compounding tragedies right now. I think we can all admit that we don't have it together. This makes me think of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. The message version says, you are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. 
With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one dear, most dear to you. Or in the First Nations version, I love this. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who walk a trail of tears. For he will wipe the tears from their eyes and comfort them. What tears have you shed this year? When have you felt at the end of your rope? When you are trying to do it all with virtual learning and working? When you're stuck in that job that you hate? When you've got that shame spiral you just can't get out of? When you're trying so hard to live up to your parents' expectations? When you are tired of having to make hard decisions about COVID protocols? when you can't have one more conversation about conspiracy theories, when you feel betrayed by that friend or that spouse or by God, does God see you there? Do we think God hears our cries and our distress and are barely hanging on? Now, some of us don't have an issue with, knowing, with feeling like God sees us. We feel like God sees us, but it's how God sees us that trips us up. This text shows us that when, that the God who sees isn't just a passive observer. God gets up close to, to Hagar. He sees in a way that impacts him. His heart instinctively responds to his people. And Jesus is the ultimate window into that response that God has. Just a couple of examples. In Matthew, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 15, but while the prodigal son was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion, and ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Luke 7, when the Lord saw the widow whose son had just died, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. This God, whose heart fills with compassion at his people, is this the God who sees you? The reality is, many of us project our past hurts or fears or shame onto God. We have these scripts that skew our understanding and experience of God's presence for us or when God sees us. Do you see, when you hear God sees me, do you think of a compassionate God who throws his arms around you? Or do you think, do you hear a disappointed dad? What voice and presence do you expect when you hear that God sees you? Do you think of God as being ambivalent to your struggle? Do you think of God as begrudgingly enduring your antics? Do you hear the voice of your perfectionist parent saying, not quite good enough, that one's probably your fault? Do you feel like God is seeing you with just a mild annoyance that you can't quite handle this better? Come on, buck up. Truth is, that is not Jesus. That is not the voice of God. Scripture shows us that, that we have a God who welcomes us with open arms. We have a God who doesn't minimize or, our, or dismiss our loud cries or silent disappointments. We have a God who will meet us right up close, right where we're at. So what does, that, what does this mean for us as we head into 2021? 
We need to know and experience the God who sees. We need to know and experience this God who sees. And I want to explore three, three ways we do that. One, know God's character and heart. Two, be rooted in God's promise. And three, embrace God's presence. So know God's character and heart, be rooted in God's presence and, or God's promises and embrace God's presence. So we need to know God's character and heart. Let's start with that. How do we fight back against these scripts and these untruths that we project onto God if we don't know what God is really like? During Pastor Peter's Unseen Battle series, he, he said that the lies that we believe stem from questioning God's intentions and heart. And what good is it for us to believe that God sees us if we don't trust that God's intentions, God's heart, and God's posture toward us are fundamentally for our good? If we don't trust that God is fundamentally for our good, why do we care that he sees us? So how do we get to know God's heart and character we got, we got to dig deep into scripture. One of the ways we get to know God's heart is through looking and meditating and wrestling with scripture. Don't just read the scriptures that are super comforting, that, feel, that make you feel better. Wrestle with the ones that make no sense. Dig deep into them because God reveals God's self through those words. Do this in community and in prayer. And um, as Pastor Peter mentioned, we've got, you know, we're doing this Defiant Faith Challenge. In January, we're going to be focusing on living in the Word. So use that opportunity to make some commitments, to get some accountability about how you dig into Scripture so you can know the God who sees, know His character and heart. Another way we know and experience this God who sees is to be rooted in God's promise. Now, one way we do this is to be really clear about what God does promise and what God does not promise. Because we have a lot of things that we believe or half-truths or even lies or nonsense that we think are God's promises, but that God never promises those things. So we've got to be clear about this. One of the most foundational promises we got to hold dear is that our identities as God's beloved children are secure in him. Identities as God's beloved children. 1 John 3 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. In college, I took a Christian self-defense class. Now, most of the class time was spent learning defense moves that would inflict great pain on men's most vulnerable body parts. But... We were not allowed to do any moves unless first we yelled at the top of our lungs, <clears throat> I'm a child of the king and I will not be a victim. Now, as you can imagine, the ladies in my class and I giggled as much as possible as we are yelling those words as we we're about to do the grab and twist move, right? And we thought it was just ridiculous. But you know, the older I get, the more that I see and experience the injustice in our world, there's actually something to it. In the face of evil forces, racism, sexism, all the destructive isms, we, have to be, we need to be firm about who and whose we are. 
when your personality, your voice, your cultural gifts, gifts are dismissed, you need to know to your, in your core that you are a child of the king. No matter what your boss says or that jerk on the dating app, no matter the rejections or failures that you have experienced, even when you disappoint yourself, God knows you by name and you are God's. Nothing can change that. Howard Thurman, a black theologian and, and civil rights leader, wrote the book Jesus and the Disinherited. Legend says that when, M, when Martin Luther King would travel, he would bring two books with him, the Bible and Jesus and the Disinherited. In this book, Thurman explores why Jesus makes a difference to those who are most marginalized, people whose backs are against the wall, as he says. One profound point he makes is he says that the degree to which someone knows that they're a child of God and that God cares for them, that person is unconquerable from within and without. Unconquerable from within and without. When God has his eyes on you and you absorb that, you are unconquerable. No person or situation from within or without can snatch the dignity, belovedness, and beauty that God has declared over you. And you got, we got to embrace and absorb that truth. Romans 8 said, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the story of Hagar is one of many stories in scripture that remind us that even though we experience, we may experience devastation and desperation and may feel totally abandoned, we are still seen, known, loved by God. We are still God's child. I mean, look at Jesus on the cross. When all hope seemed lost, when it looked like the promise of new life was dead on a tree, God was still working. God was still faithful. God was still good, and God's promise and power and love was going to win. And he promises that for us. For us, we get that promise that when all hope seems lost for us, when we are just unable to handle the uncertainty, disappointment, and tensions of life, God is still for us. God is still for you. And we need to be rooted in that truth. We, one of the things we also need to be clear about is what God doesn't promise. And God does not promise that we're going to be free from pain and suffering. We don't get a hall pass on uncertainty and disappointment and tension just because we're God's children. But God promises his presence in the midst of it. When that baby was breech and the prospect of a C-section was getting more and more likely, I knew God was with me. But uh, I didn't really want God's presence. I wanted God to problem solve this situation. I didn't really want God's presence. I wanted some pain, some God to numb the pain of my broken heart. And if God wasn't going to do that, what good was his presence? Have you ever felt that deep, deep down? You may not really relate to the C-section thing that I'm talking about, but 
Have you ever, have you ever really deep down felt like, you know, God's presence just isn't enough? God, I know you are with me, but can you just get me that spouse? God, I know you're with me, but, but can you just heal my anxiety? The hard but freeing truth is that this side of heaven, God never promised to solve all our problems. God also did not promise to magically remove our pain this side of heaven. Will he one day solve every problem and bring total restoration and reconciliation, wipe every tear from our eyes? Absolutely. And along the way, does God promise joy and peace and healing and miracles? Yes. But in our darkest moments, sometimes, on this side of heaven, the best thing God offers us is his presence. So what's so great about God's presence? For Hagar, God wasn't a passive observer. He got up close. And in Jesus, we have a God who is not satisfied with seeing or saving us from a distance, but we have a God who became us, who took on our flesh, who um, exposed himself to suffering and pain and took on our vulnerabilities. And to me, that changes everything about what God's presence offers. Because when we're filled with uncertainty, disappointment, and tension, the last thing we need is some distant God stoically saying, just hold on until heaven. We need a God who says, yeah, I've been there. I know what that's like. And that, my friends, is Jesus. Brene Brown explains this so profoundly. She says, I wanted faith to work like an epidural to numb the pain of vulnerability. As it turned out, my faith ended up being more like a midwife, a nurturing partner who leans into the discomfort with me and whispers, push, breathe. You've got this. I'm here. And so God's presence is, yes, ultimately there's, it's about power and victory, but when we are in the trenches, God's presence is there saying, yeah, I know this is crummy. It's not the end. Keep going. He, when he humbled himself to become us, he gave dignity to our pain and hope for our future. Ultimately, after a tumultuous labor with Davy, miraculously and at the very last minute, I didn't have a C-section. And so God solved that problem, right? But you know, I wasn't satisfied. That solution didn't meet my deepest longings. My deepest longings were, <laughs> were that I just wanted my pain and my, my pain and my loss to be seen and honored. I wanted to hear God say, yes, I know it hurts and I'm so sorry. I needed to know in my core that God is still good and still faithful, even though nothing makes sense. And no amount of solved problems could meet the deepest needs of my heart. Nothing could give me that. Only Jesus, our suffering Savior, who is in the trenches with us, can do that for us.
God's presence doesn't totally take away our uncertainty, disappointment, and tension, but the God of the universe walks with us with care and dignity. He promises this is not the end of the story, that our pain is not unseen or unwanted, or, or that our pain is not unseen or wasted, but that through it God will bring redemption and beauty and life. And when we embrace that reality, that compassionate presence of God, it propels us forward with hope and courage. And that is what's so great about God's presence. So, as we close out 2020, if you are crawling over the finish line because you have been through it this year, in what ways do you need to know the God who sees you with compassion? That God is for you, child of God, and that God's with you. And as we head into 2021, we don't know what this marathon course is going to look like. If we'll feel well-trained, or maybe we'll get injured along the way, or who knows, maybe it'll snow the whole time. We don't know. But we do know that we have a God who sees us. And in as much as we can know and embrace the character and heart of God, we will be unconquerable. May we cling to the presence of God this year and be rooted in God's promises so that with Jesus in the trenches with us, on the course with us, we'll be able to finish this next race. Please pray with me. Lord, you've seen where we've been this past year. The uncertainty, the disappointment, and tensions we've experienced, you alone know where we are going. Stir in our hearts a burning desire to know and experience you for who you are. May we see your heart, may we stand firm in our identities as your children, and may we embrace your presence. In your holy name, amen. And now I'm going to offer us a benediction to close our service from the book of 2 Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a great weekend, everyone. Peace.